one of the things that is so interesting is what has worked in the past and the mentalities that have supported that in the past are becoming outdated. I saw a recent study, Gen Z, 67% of them will not work at a company that they don't feel aligns with their values. And that's the next generation of workers coming into the workforce. And I don't see that changing. Like I don't see them growing up and getting sort of calloused and all about money. It's a different way of living and being in the world. And so if you want to stay competitive as a company, if you want Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which my child is a part of, to actually really support your business and be a part of it and purchase from it and participate in whatever you're creating, you have to care. You can't just pretend you can't do, quote, business as usual because that's not business as usual anymore. The expectations are different and they're higher. Just stop it. The -the run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum, bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with arrows in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest is a born disruptor. We're talking to her today because we are exploiting the status quo of the SaaS fake growth business model. That's right. I said it. The SaaS fake growth business model. Securing funding is pretty great, right? Selling your product is pretty great. Monetary expansion is pretty great, but there's something even better. Purpose-driven profits. Let everyone else scale at cost by cutting corners and losing their souls, but that has its liabilities and limitations. How about scaling like an actual person? Because the best way to grow your business is by giving a shit. Coming to us live from New York, please welcome our disruptor, CEO of Pixels for Humans, Heather O'Neill. Yay. Hi, KJ. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great today. I'm amped up on a really good cup of coffee. How about you? I'm also doing great. I've got my coffee here as well. Awesome. Okay, Heather, I am so excited about this. Before we get into this cancerous SaaS fake growth business model and really exploiting what that is and what's going on, first of all, tell our listeners, what is your main fundamental ingredient for disruptive innovation? It's going to sound a little cliche, but it's caring. And when I say caring, I don't mean like having nice feelings about people in the world or wanting good things for them, but I'm talking about the action of caring, giving space for actually acting on the things you say. If we care about humans, if we care about society, if we care about what is happening to the earth, that requires us to take action and make choices that are different than the ones that maybe we've made in the past, and especially so in the tech industry. I'm glad you said that at the very end, especially so in the tech industry. 
it can seem trite. It can seem overused, not authentic, only because I think people use it as quote unquote PR rather than reality. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, especially in tech companies, there's this notion of, oh, we live by our values, but that's rarely actually the case in the way that they make decisions. They have these fluffy words that sound nice, like we care, we're innovative, we are inclusive. But when it comes to make choices that would either potentially make them more money, but might cause a lot of harm or would force them to be sort of inhumane in some way, even if it's just to their own employees, most companies and most decision makers and companies, especially tech companies, will choose the usual path, the make money at any cost path. And that's the thing that I'm really looking to disrupt is how do we turn the values on your website into actual ways that you make decision in your company? Yeah, let's talk about that harm and the inhumane ways uh, to make money because it is extremely short-sighted and it has a real ill effect on the brand. The number of brands that actually make it with that kind of deleterious action is not as high as people really think. Yeah, absolutely. With a lot of companies, what I'll see is they're fine to go along with it until something goes wrong or they don't make as much money as they've expected. And then they're like, oh, well, now I have to go back to the old way. And it's like, no, we have to just keep going this way. And there's a lot of ways to make different choices that are not sort of celebrated. And so it can feel like I'm failing. But when we look at all the quote unquote success stories, and I'm putting success in quotes for a reason, with tech companies, it's this idea of like a hockey stick of growth, right? You suddenly find traction and then suddenly you take off and you're only ever growing and growing and growing. The only thing that ever does that is cancer. In the natural world, in reality, we all have seasons. We all have times when we're growing and times when we're resting. The trees every year, yes, they get taller, but they also lose their leaves every season. And without doing that, if they had leaves all the time, it wouldn't work. But we look at company growth and we say anything that keeps the numbers always going up. And that's just not even sustainable. It's not even possible. And so we do fake things to make that happen. Okay, good. So that we're getting into the fake. Let's talk about that. So we're, we're talking about general here. I'm glad you mentioned the hockey stick. That is not how things work. Things ebb and flow. As long as the trend is going up, that's what you're looking at. But get into the fake thing. Like let's get some real life examples, fake things that are keeping the growth or trying to keep the growth going. Well, one thing that happened recently is there's a tech founder who said, oh, I'm building in public and he's on Twitter. And he said, oh, I just had to lay off 7% of my staff and I'm really sad about it. And I'm having all these feelings because it was so hard because they worked so hard to get us here. And then he goes on to say, I laid them off, not because we don't have enough money. We actually have, we're profitable currently. We're more profitable than we've ever been. But in order to keep scaling, I need to cut costs. Wow, what an oxyboron. Right? It it almost doesn't make sense. Like in my crisis management world, that would be a strength to pull. Where's the lie? It's so wild because everybody was like, "Um, this is not correct. And he's like, you just don't understand business. And I'm just trying to be honest. And it's like, you've said the quiet part out loud, my friend. Yeah. So what would be a solution to that? You know, you advise tech startups and founders to expand with purpose. What would be a solution to that? In this particular instance, first of all, not laying off the team that got you that profitability, because 
he said, last year at this time, we weren't profitable and my team really put in the effort to get us profitable. And now I'm letting all these people go. Could you imagine being like, thanks, we got you here. Now you're going to not keep us employed anymore. So certainly keeping the team members that you have and figuring out if there's not room for their role or like you pivoted in a meaningful way that their role doesn't make sense. Can you find a way to bring them into other parts of the company or give them a say? It becomes a communication and not just a top-down decision where you can look at, hey, we don't need this particular thing that you do anymore. Here are some things we do need. Are any of those a fit? Can we talk about that first? Instead of going out and hiring new people to do new roles, because I'm certain that this person is also hiring. Well, new people to do new roles and getting rid of people that have done roles that have institutional knowledge is extremely expensive. Oh, so expensive. Hiring new people is so much more expensive. And I'm watching all these tech layoffs and you can't tell me that in the next six months, any of these companies, especially these tech giants, aren't going to be hiring again. And some of them are still hiring even as they're laying people off. It's a short-term cost-cutting measure that I saw people at Google and Amazon who had 20 years experience there, 20 years experience. Can you imagine what is in their brain that nobody is going to know now? It's such a short-sighted decision. And I think that constantly in tech, we're seeing founders told that that's how you make decisions, just short-sighted, whatever gets you the money now. And when you're bootstrapped and you're very small, sometimes that is true. But as you grow and at these tech companies, they have the money. They have the capital to support that. And they're losing so much. What drives this humanity versus profits? Honestly, I think it's sometimes it's fear or this cultivation that we have in society of like, I need more and more and more and more. We don't know how to find enough in what we have or what we could have. We're always striving for that. Oh, if I could just hit this milestone, then I will feel safe and secure. You hit that milestone and you don't feel any different. So you try for the next one. And the things that make us feel safe and secure and confident and like we have enough don't have anything to do with milestones we hit. And so when we have these leaders leading these companies and they haven't done any meaningful self-reflection or any thoughts about what is enough and what do I not want to compromise in order to grow this business, they end up compromising before they've even realized it. And suddenly they're not the person they thought they were, but they can't talk about that because then they wouldn't know what to do with their feelings. Yeah. And people think feelings is overrated in business, but this does have an effect not only on their personal character, but them as a leader. And then it opens the door for attacks on their brand. Yeah. We underestimate the impact of feelings on literally everything we do. Science has proven again and again that we make decisions based on our feelings almost always, regardless of how logical we think we are. As a mathematician, I tend to be very logical. I still can see, oh yeah, I made that decision based on feelings. And when you haven't reckoned with that, you can retcon sort of the logic to a decision, but you don't almost ever make a decision because of logic. You make it because of feelings. And when you don't know that, you make more feelings-based decisions and you think you're logical. And it's a sort of catch-22. It's very true. Well, you know, sales is, it doesn't matter what the sale is. It doesn't matter what the product is. It doesn't matter how much research or logic you do to it. Sales is always based off of feelings. And really good tech sales teams know that just as well. But you're right. 
It is a decision-making process that feelings do enter in on that. Emotion emotes, it gets people to move. Yeah, it really does. And that's why every request you get for money from a political party or campaign or every time you're talking to someone and you're having these sales moments, they tell you stories, right? They tell you not facts and figures because facts and figures don't sway, even though we, we like to tell ourselves that, oh, if I knew the numbers, they would sway me. They don't. What sways is that story, is that personal connection that I identify with this and now I can see myself in it. So now I'm going to go choose that. So let's just say this is like a group think agreement, right? There is a feeling that pushes this profits hockey stick over humanity. I've got to do this or I'm not going to get my next stage of funding or I've got to do this because my investors want me to. I've got to do this because this is how you do it. A lot of times we operate in business based off fixed ideas, not necessarily what works. What are the benefits of doing it differently? Stepping outside that avid craving for agreement. What are the benefits on the bottom line in regarding that? Is it slower growth? Is it just as advantageous to do it that way? I mean, in America, and I'll say this and I'll let you speak, but in America, we don't really do anything unless it affects our pocketbooks, healthcare transparency and issues on things that are harmful for us. I mean, we could get all the warnings in the world, but when it affects corporate pocketbooks, it's really the only time that things change historically. We know diversity creates better profits. It creates better businesses, right? Now those studies are starting to show and now it's become this, almost like this fad. How do we look at consciousness in the workplace and relate that to growth? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it's really important to understand that, yes, it does have an impact, but it looks different, right? We have to be okay with the differences. One of the things that is so interesting is what has worked in the past and the mentalities that have supported that in the past are becoming outdated. I saw a recent study, Gen Z, 67% of them will not work at a company that they don't feel aligns with their values. And those are that's the next generation of workers coming into the workforce. And I don't see that changing. Like I don't see them growing up and getting sort of calloused and all about money. It's a different way of living and being in the world. And so if you want to stay competitive as a company, if you want Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which my child is a part of, to actually really support your business and be a part of it and purchase from it and participate in whatever you're creating, you have to care. You can't just pretend you can't do, quote, business as usual, because that's not business as usual anymore. The expectations are different and they're higher. You know, that's really very interesting that you mentioned Gen Z. I just did an interview with a Gen Zer who created a whole new investing app for Gen Zers based on their caring consciousness, the wanting to invest in companies that actually were doing something for the greater good. And in my research, I didn't know this, but 27% of the population in the U.S. is Gen Z. That's over a quarter. That has a significant impact. And as they get older and they have more far-reaching effects in business, that is going to have a huge effect, right? It already is having an effect on brands for sure. Absolutely. And I think even millennials, I guess I'm an Xennial. I'm right on the cusp of Gen X and millennial, fun of being born in the early 80s. Like a lot of us care more as well and want better and different things. I think we're less willing to burn all the bridges all the time. But I don't think that's a bad thing that Gen Z is like, 
no, we're, we're burning it down here if you don't do things in a meaningful, good way. It's a continued growth of how do we embrace our humanity again? How do we embrace community again? There's a hyper focus in American society on individualization, but nobody gets anywhere individually, even if we think we do. There's always a mountain of people behind you supporting you along the way. That person that gave you a chance, the spouse that worked while you went back to school, the family member who gave you that initial seed money or whatever it is, even if we think we're self-made, the biggest ironic labeling of someone as self-made was Kylie Jenner's beauty line. Yes, she did that, but also she had so much more in terms of resources and capacity to do that in the first place. That is true. If I had the amount of money she had in her family, I could probably also have done that. (laughs) There's nothing self-made about anyone. And that's not a bad thing. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people are realizing is that we're in this as people together. And if we can't care about other people, there's a reason they say it's lonely at the top. And it's often because you had to like step on everyone to get there. (laughs) That's such an awful analogy. But yeah, I find that innovators and disruptors that I talk to that are at the top of their field, I mean, you know, they've had to go against the status quo. All of them have a real purpose to help. And many of them have, you know, again, gone against this avid craving for agreement. They have errors in their backs because of it, but they're generally the most humble, gracious people that I've ever met. And I think that's a new breed of entrepreneurs that is coming into the market. We've seen more entrepreneurs, more people, you know, taking out license for businesses since COVID. A lot of these Gen Zers, millennials. How do you help an entrepreneur map out this caring model with their business model for growth? One of the first things that I look at with companies that I work with is how they make decisions. And we look at first how they think they make decisions. And then we look at the decisions that they made and we sort of talk through how that decision got made. I was working with a founder who's really interested in disrupting the hiring process and when he decided that we would work together, it was clearly a feeling. He's like, yes, I want to do it. Let's do it. Like he didn't even wait to hear what I was going to offer, how we're going to work together. He was just like, I'm ready. This is it. And so we talked about how that plays out in a lot of the decisions that he's making, because I saw that one firsthand. And of course, he felt there was logic behind it. But we got to sit and talk through what are the other things that might have also been behind this decision and some of the other decisions? And how does that mean you show up when you're making decisions about your product and decisions about your customers and decisions about hiring and firing and growing this business and having it have the impact on the hiring process that you want it to have? And so really a lot of it is establishing what are the decisions that are coming up How are we making them and how do we want to be making them? Are those two aligned? And if they're not, where do we need space to stop and pause in order to make sure we stay aligned and we don't suddenly start cutting corners just to get some cash or cutting corners because investors said so or building something people don't want because we think it'll make us more money? You know, you're such a hybrid, which disruptors are, innovators are. You know, I look at it's a very logical, mathematical approach to a... Almost like the humanities and liberal arts training, right? Like a combination of both. Yeah, that's on brand. (laughs) It is on brand for you, yes. So there's obviously a process that you take a founder 
a startup, an entrepreneur through to establish decision-making that's very critical for growth? Do you create SOP or you know something that is a framework for, for all decision-making in the future and measure this against their growth? Yeah. So we make basically sort of a flow chart more than an SOP, but I guess it, it would also be considered an SOP. And it's nice because then that can be shared with other members of the team. And then what I usually, when I work with someone, we do this upfront and then we spend six months working on it together to make sure A, it stays aligned. And when it doesn't feel aligned anymore, they don't just toss it aside, they update it. And then B, like what comes up when we try to make these decisions and they feel hard or scary or like nobody's doing this, or if I do this, I might lose this customer, this client, this investor, this thing. We have honest conversations about that and we decide together, like, is this trade-off worth it? And what will this cause us to lose if we do it? Which I think is something that most founders sort of, they do, but only half-heartedly enough to convince themselves that it's okay, but they don't really reckon with the long-term impact of that. And that's something we talk about a lot. The short-term and the mid-term impact, what sort of results are you seeing? When I work with people or when I don't, sorry. When you do. We know it happens when you don't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we know what's happening out there and there's tons of news about it, right? Yeah. The short-term impact is sometimes we don't get that client or that investment, but we have a plan for how that's going to not be a problem. We don't just say, oh, well, too bad. We'll just cross our fingers. Somebody else comes along. We keep going towards who we want to work with more targetedly, how we want to work with them and what we're willing to compromise on. Sometimes when we push back, people say, okay, they just never had anyone push back before. They weren't wedded to it. And I think that's the other thing too. When you're a founder and you're growing your company, you can be scared that if I push back or if I say no, they won't want to work with me. And most of the time, that's not even the case. They'll just say, oh, okay, I'm fine with this compromise. Or, oh, okay, I'm actually okay doing it that way too. I just also was scared and didn't know another way to do it. Interesting. And so you don't always lose out on what you think you're going to lose out on. And then long-term, like the confidence level soars. I can go out in the world and be fully who I want to be, run the company in this thoughtful way that aligns with who I think I am and not worry about what business as usual says. When Google and Amazon started the beginning of the year by laying people off, so many tech companies were like, oh, we now have to lay people off. You don't actually. And that's the thing that when I work with people, they don't feel like they have to do what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing it. Yeah, you know, you're pretty dangerous. You're creating free thinkers in our society. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> you mentioned something about getting the investment or not getting the investment, right? How do you see this model changing venture capital? Venture capital, well, A, they're a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a talk in 2018 about women in tech for a, a 10-year anniversary of a women in tech organization. And one of the things I said was, in venture capital, they're not actually making decisions, similar to what we talked about earlier, based on who is actually going to do the best. They're making decisions based on what they know and what they've seen before. And I had a quote from, I forget which investor, but one of the more famous ones said, give me a bike guy in his 20s in a hoodie and I'm sold. He literally said that. And so investors, there's no accountability right now in the VC world. Like they just throw money at whoever they think and hope it works out. They're taking gambles. 
And what I think this does is it forces investors to also be accountable because when you have an investor, they get involved in your business. They tell you how to build things, what to do, because it's their money on the line. But when you are a founder who is willing to walk away from investment, when you're a founder who's willing to find a different path or to not compromise on those things, the investors lose the power to dictate what you should do in your business. And when that happens, then you can work together to actually create something meaningful as opposed to just something that's going to make money at the expense of often everybody using it. Yeah. You know, that really should be the motto of these Gen Zers and venture capital purpose-driven profits. Yeah. Okay. So when did that become, that's it for you? That's freaking it. I'm done with this. I'm doing something about it. Was it a buildup? Was it a particular moment in your life or career? What was it? I think it was more of a buildup. I will say, as may not be shocking and probably matches many people you've spoken to, like I've lost my job over speaking up many times. No. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I I know. We're all shocked here. Yeah. But yeah, I've been on projects. Even when I was in college, I, I worked for an organization. I went to Northeastern, so they have what's called a co-op program. You work six months out of every year at a full-time job. I was at a full-time job and I was put on a project with someone who just didn't show up to work. They came in 11 to three, maybe like twice a week. And that was it. And I was on the project with this person. And so I went to call them out and call them out to their boss. And I did that. And then I immediately got in trouble and got fired. And I was like, you can't fire me. I had months of really good reviews and this and that. And they're like, oh, you're a cop. We can fire you. Wow. So that was my first lesson in I see nobody cares about making things actually what we say. Even to more recently, I had a client and I thought we were really aligned. They have really strong values that were very heavily influential in their decision making. And then they got either word from one of their investors or something. Somebody somewhere said, you are not making enough money. So they tried to launch new feature on their product that they thought would make them money. And it was a flop. And I said at the beginning, I don't think we should build this. I think it's not going to go well because it's clear from talking to your customers, nobody actually wants this. It flopped. And then I got told, oh, you're actually really hard to work with and we don't want to continue working with you. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't want to do this in the first place. Like, So it's just sort of this, this history of I'm willing to go in and sort of say what probably a lot of people might be thinking, but feel afraid to say. And I'm going to hold you to the values that you're saying that you want. If you've listed on your website, I'm going to believe you. And then I'm going to ask you how you're doing that. And when you can't answer me, then we might have a little bit of friction. But if you're willing to walk that walk, we'll figure it out together. I think that's awesome. And you mentioned something that is really, to me, very important. We always see like the About Us page or you know our story or our purpose or our mission on the website. And, you know, I can tell you in the PR industry that that is a very important page on a website. People do care about that story. They care about the why. But companies put it on there as a static placeholder, but it drives the business strategy. It drives, like the reason why you have internal PRs that work with large corporations is you have to get everybody on board with initiatives and policies that aligns with the purpose. Everybody's got a reason for being there based off of the purpose of the company. 
It's the whole reason why communicators communicate to a variety of target audiences because they're getting people to buy into that purpose. And that is probably the least viewed, the most unimportant page or aspect on a website when really consumers look at that as their number one priority today. Yeah. And people want to know that their actions are having a good impact. They don't want to be part of the exploitation of workers in the global South, or they don't want to be a part of causing global warming. And so if you can find the way to build your business and help people understand how their choices in working with you and choosing your products lets them be a part of the good in the world, everybody wants that at the end of the day. Yeah, it drives sales. That's for sure. We need to have more and more studies on that. So tell me about Pixels for Humans. Where did you come up with the name? When did you say, this is my baby? I'm going to now have a platform for my integrity of speaking up. Pixels for Humans. I had a first business with a business partner that didn't end well. And nine days after we closed our first business, I started Pixels for Humans. And the reason was because I had a client who was like, no, really, I want to work with you. Please like, go form another company or something so I can work with you. And I was like, well, okay. So I did. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. And that was in 2014. Yeah. And do people ask you, like, what do, why did you pick Pixels for Humans? Like, what's the name mean? No, they mostly get it. They go, oh, that's nice. Or they go, why pixels? They're like, I get the four humans. And I'm like, well, because we do a lot of design work, or at least we did when I started it, less so now. But the pixels are the little tiny dots that make up the color on your screens. It does communicate digital technology, unfeeling and so forth, but you add the humanity to it. And then people probably, it probably is a conversation starter, right? Yeah. And people really like the notion that one of the things I think that we've forgotten on this this great growth of tech is that tech should work to make our lives better. But instead, most of the tech we've built, actually, we have to work our lives around it instead. Like how many passwords do you have to remember? God, is that true? You know, I use LastPass. <laughs> so exactly. I don't have to remember that. But yeah, before LastPass, I, I, uh, I hid my life. <laughs> Yeah, my mom still has like a little sticky note with all her passwords on it, on her <laughs> That's desk. That's terrible. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's made our lives a bit more hectic, hasn't it? The more we can get back to thinking about technology as a tool to improve human lives, the more that we will create tech that is meaningful, impactful, and really successful. Yes, I agree with you. So who do you work with? What types of entrepreneurs, companies, and so forth? I work with mainly tech founders and I actually also, this is a audience I didn't know that I, but it makes sense. I also work with people who have service businesses that work with tech founders. So people like me as their coach, support, consultant, champion, sounding board. And so people who really would like to build differently because not all tech founders want to build differently. They just want to get their cash and move on. And those, those are not the right people for me. And that's fine. But there are plenty of tech founders who start their company because they're like, I had this problem and I just needed it solved. So I solved it and I want to solve it for other people. And when you have that idea of I can make something better for myself and for other people in the world, you don't want to end up creating something that actually doesn't help people or that just monetizes their participation without thinking about what they really need. Yeah, I like it. Tech founders that want to do things differently or build differently. Yeah. 
Heather, do you have any like crazy passions outside of what you're doing? Most innovators do this like all the time. It's their passion, but some have some really crazy passions. What about you? I try not to say crazy because it's ableist, but I do have some passions I love. One of which is baking. I'm a ridiculously good amateur baker, but it's something where like I would never do it for money because the amount of money I would want to charge is nothing anyone would want to pay. <laughs> but I can send you some photos later or share some for the the site of things I've baked. They're pretty yes. exciting. Oh, definitely send them for sure. I watch the Great British Baking Show. Do you ever watch that? It's, that's a great one. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> My daughter and I also really like nailed it because she likes seeing how everybody makes something and it looks really silly. But yeah, I am better than nailed it, but I don't know that I'd survive on Great British Bake Off. (laughs) Well, I think you really have to know the uh, centuries of British baking and, you know, all of the history they have. Right. They've got stuff. They're like, oh, a soccer tour. I'm like, a what now? (laughs) Now I know what it is, but I never had heard of it before. Well, I am not an amateur baker like you, but I'm convinced after watching that show that I can do most things. On it. Yeah, <laughs> It's kind of like watching the Olympics. You're so certain that you can do that after you watch it. Exactly. I could sprint that fast, <laughs> probably. Yes, I can do a roll without cracking the dough. Yeah. <laughs> right. What's your favorite thing to bake? Probably would be, um, I make a naked s'mores cake and it's a take on Christina Tosi's she has a s'mores cake recipe, but I don't love everything she's done. So I made my own version of it. And it's like a fudgy chocolate cake, homemade fudge, marshmallow fluff, homemade also graham cracker crumbles, and it gets torched on the top and on the sides. And it's so delicious. Sounds delish. Six layers high. It's very good. And you call it a naked s'mores cake. Yeah, there's no frosting on the outside. Oh, nice. Just on the top, there's the marshmallow and you toast it nice and golden and you toast the marshmallow layers as you put them on. It's just really good. It sounds delicious. Send a picture of that next time you make it. Absolutely. Okay, Heather, how do people get a hold of you? They can find me at pixelsforhumans.com slash podcast. And I'll have a special treat for people there. But then also I'm on LinkedIn. Find me on Instagram also, all pixelsforhumans pretty much everywhere I go. And also, if you want to email me, heather at pixelsforhumans.com, we keep it simple. Great. Now, what's the number one question you get asked when people contact you? I wasn't ready for this question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Mostly like, can you help me? I guess it's like, can you help me figure this out? Can you help me do things different? Can you help me solve this problem that I'm having that I don't know what to do with? There you go. Heather O'Neill, can you help me do things different? Thank you so much, Heather, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Spread this far and wide. I think we need to have more purpose-driven profits. Agreed. Thanks so much, KJ. I really appreciate your time today. You bet. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed about our amateur baking feats, go tell someone about this podcast. And tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. 
contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.